When you turn through the pages of the Bible, um, every page, uh, whether specifically addressing it or not, you learn something about God on each page. Uh, the, even the context might not be immediately directed at increasing our knowledge about God himself, but in every page we can learn something about God. It's, of course, pivotal. Our knowledge of God is pivotal to our whole purpose in this world, and so we should, of course, be looking for ways to increase our knowledge as we study through the pages of Scripture. When you break it up even to further within the Godhead, of course, there's a lot of information to be learned about each one of the persons among the Godhead. There's benefits for it, and there's, of course, uh, much to be learned about each one of them. You couldn't do uh, a justice to a lesson on any one of the three persons of the Godhead in one lesson. It's, a, it's such a rich and full um, uh, collection of information and collection of knowledge that can be obtained by each one of the Godhead. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, Brother Terrence, uh, last week in the gospel meeting, uh, went through these ones as he was addressing the unity. In Ephesians 4 and verse 4, amongst those, there is one body and one spirit. You have in Ephesians 4 and verse 4 a reference to one spirit. Now, it's important that we understand and further clarify, of course, what he means by that one spirit. You have in verse 23, for example, of Ephesians 4, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That spirit there references a, a, a aspect of, of man similar to the mind. And so it would, in fact, be something that there's many of. There's not one of man's spirit or one man mind. There's many of them. You could also go to places like James chapter 2, verse 26, where he describes the fact the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without work. Spirit referencing the thing that gives you life in that aspect. And so you would be, be uh, more synonymous with the soul. And so the Spirit's used in many different ways. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 describes angels as ministering spirits, plural. And so when I read one spirit, I have to further clarify and further study to know exactly what Paul has in mind when he says the spirit I have in reference here is there's only one of him. There's only one of this spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, you'll look a bit farther down to verse, uh, tw- uh, verse 30. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. He references, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. When he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, there's one spirit, he has in mind that Holy Spirit of God. There's only one of him. There's only, spirit that, there's only one spirit that is God. There are many spirits, but only one Holy Spirit that is God. And so what he has in mind, and he say, lays that beside one Lord, that would be the Son and one Father in verse 6, verses 5 and 6, He's laying out that, that all three persons of the Godhead, there is one of each one of them. So you have in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 a reference to that one spirit, which is in fact uh, the spirit of God in, the, in, in mind in Ephesians 4 and verse 4. If you go to Luke chapter 3, that spirit, that spirit of God, on few occasions manifests himself to man. There's a few occasions wherein he himself manifests himself to man. Uh, for example, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, Luke 3 and verse 22, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, upon Jesus, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. There are a few examples in Scripture of where the Holy Spirit himself manifests himself in another form in order that man, the man, that, the, the one who's being visited at that point, is going to be able to be, behold in some way what's happening there. That manifestation of himself. Uh, for the, uh, you also see a few examples of where the Holy Spirit is going to be on earth. Actually, back in creation in Genesis 
1 and verse 2, which we'll get to in a moment. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. That is on that earth that has just been created. And so you see him on earth himself on occasion in the Bible. You see him manifesting himself in a different form. Now we know that the other person in the Godhead, Jesus Christ, manifested himself in another form many more times in Scripture. And you could do a whole, a whole a collection of examples where the Son, the second person in the Godhead, manifested himself in another form, particularly when you study the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But predominantly what you have of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is not a manifestation of himself into a new form. It's a manifestation of his power. It is his power that is being manifested to the, to the one that's actually going to be in, in mind in those particular verses. The manifestation of his power itself, not the Spirit himself, is what you predominantly see in Scripture. I think that might be linked to why he is described as a spirit. A spirit is going to be one who has to change his form, has to manifest himself differently in order to be beheld by that which is natural, the human. And so his very description of spirit indicates and necessitates a manifestation in different form in order for man to actually witness it and, and behold it. That does not happen as often, I think, as many people realize in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. But in all of those times that, he, that his power is manifested to man, I think what you're going to see when you study it as a whole is that as a whole, his manifestations, the manifestations of his power, are overall accomplishing what his main function, his main role in the Godhead was and is. His main role in the Godhead, and that's what I want to look at this evening as we study the Holy Spirit, is his main role or his main function within the Godhead. You can, you can look at all three of them and see that they have various roles. Uh, the spirits, I believe, we're going to be able to sum up in his accomplishing of unity and order. His main role, his main uh, goal, if you will, in the activity of the Holy Spirit is to accomplish unity and order. And I want to present and look at that in Scripture this evening. You see that from the very beginning of creation. I want you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. From the very beginning of creation on, you're going to see his role being manifested in his organizing, in his setting things in order, in his bringing unity uh, into certain things. You see that in creation. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10, I want to remind us of what Scripture tells us about someone who is involved in creation. In Malachi 2 and verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Meaning... If someone is, was involved in creation, he is God. If someone was involved in creation, he is God. Only one God created us. Now, there's three persons within that God, but if he was involved in creation, he is God. So when I go to Genesis 1 and verse 2 and note that the Spirit of God was involved as he hovers over the face of the deep, I think what you see within the creation is a beautiful demonstration of each of the three persons of the Godhead's roles. You have the Father, who's what we would de describe as the architect, the one who has the mind, the one who has the, the blueprint, if you will, made. He is the architect, the mind behind creation. You have the Son, who is the one who's actually executing the creation, the one who's actually involved in the construction of all things, the one who actually uh, carries it out. But you have the Spirit of God, who's now taking the waters which the, the Son has created and is organizing them, bringing order or, and bringing together in unity that which the Son has created. And I would, call, I would describe that as a superintendent. He's the one who's organizing and bringing those things to order. The architect being the Father, the Son being the one who's actually in the construction of it. 
All three had different roles in creation. His role, the Spirit's role, was in fact going to be that organizing. Go with me back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And look with me in verse 3. And what Brother Terrence did last week in his topic in the gospel meeting was he addressed that unity. And I want to remind us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3 of several things. I want to remind us that Paul writes endeavoring to keep the unity. And I've brought this up before. He does not say make unity. It is not our job, nor do we have the power to make unity. Our job is to keep the unity that has already been made. The unity that has been made, according to Ephesians 4 and verse 3, has been made of the Spirit. The Spirit in His overarching role was to bring about unity. The Christian's goal and responsibility is to keep it that way. And the Spirit has revealed, for example, in verses 4 through 6, a part of that unity. The Spirit has revealed it. Our job is to keep it that way, not make unity, but keep unity. That's because the Spirit's role was bringing about unity and order. And it goes with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And look with me in verse 1. Philippians 2 and verse 1. Following Jason's lesson, it completely relates to the, the verses that came before it at the end of chapter 1, which we looked at this morning. As you move into chapter 2, he's not completely done with this thought. If there be therefore any consolation or any comfort, which is in Christ that place wherein all comfort and consolation is, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship, if you look it up, is joint participation. There's joint participation that he's being, that's being described. It involves the Spirit, and then lo and behold in verse 2, he's going to describe the participation of the Spirit in bringing about these things when he says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Each, each description in verse 2 describes unity and order. The Spirit was joint, has joint participation in that because He was the originator of it. We are responsible for keeping it that way. That you be uh, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's the Spirit's participation. He has made this singular thing being described there. He is bringing things to unity because that is His main overarching role within the Godhead, that organizing, that bringing order, and that, in fact, uh, bringing of accomplishing of unity uh, among mankind. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The question would be asked, how does he accomplish this? How is the, how is the Spirit, if his role was to bring about unity and order amongst God's and, and before God's creation, how was he going to accomplish this? And the greatest sense and the greatest way through which he was going to accomplish it was by revealing the Father's mind, the architect's mind, by revealing the Father's mind to mankind through words. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 begins with me in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2 beginning in verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us, those things that he's prepared ahead of time, by his Spirit, the Spirit being the revealer, of God, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The architect has these deep things, the Spirit searches those out and reveals them for a purpose. He says in verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of man, say the Spirit of man which is in him? Because remember, the Spirit is used also of man's spirit. There's many of those, but only one Spirit of God, save the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Not naturally, we cannot naturally know them. That's what he means by eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard. 
It is not natural to know these things. God had to become involved and reveal by the Spirit searching out the mind of the Father, the architect, and revealing unto mankind. That's how we can know these things. Then he says in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. How are we going to know these things? Because the Spirit searched them out of the Father and revealed them unto mankind. The end goal going to be bringing about unity, bringing about order. We're going to see this. Go with me. I want to look at two examples. And again, go with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. Again, when you're dealing with information regarding the Godhead, there are so many places you could go. I've just chosen two. I've tried to choose two that maybe are not typical to go to. But I want you to go with me to Numbers chapter 22, and I want you to note the Spirit searching out the deep things of the Father and revealing them unto man, the how of which he's going to do this is through words. Scripture is very clear about that. I want you to note with me in Numbers chapter 22, go with me to verse 21. Numbers 22, beginning verse 21. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord, this is interesting because if this is the second person of the Godhead, which in a moment you're going to see this angel of the Lord be, being called the Lord, Jehovah. So if this is the second person of the Godhead, that's going to come into play of us understanding what's happening here. This angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. So you recall Balaam is riding along on his donkey. The angel of the Lord is standing in his way. He cannot see him yet at this point, but he is standing in his way, in fact, to uh, actually to take his life. I want you to go down to verse 27. When the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? On this occasion, the angel of the Lord, out in front of them, and if this is the second person of Godhead, I think that would indicate it's not the second person of Godhead who's, go, who's bringing this thing about, but the Lord opens up his mouth, the donkey's mouth. And the reason I want to go to this is because he's doing it with a donkey. God is opening the mouth of a donkey, and we're going to see this communication that, that pours forth, and that communication is going to be accomplishing God's will uh, in, this, in this example. If you have not already done so, I would encourage you to mark 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16 out beside this. 2 Peter 2 and verse 16. The reason being, Peter reveals to us many years later how God accomplishes this. Because what you do not have here is the donkey opening his mouth and saying hee-haw, hee-haw, and Balaam understanding it. That's not what's happening in this example. Because Peter lets us know in 2 Peter 2, verse 16, that he opened his mouth and, a, and spoke to him in a man's voice. 2 Peter 2, verse 16. He spoke to him in a man's voice. God, Jehovah God, has opened the mouth of a donkey and is using a man's voice to speak from it and is using man's words, not donkey's words, in order to communicate to Balaam on this occasion. That second period to verse 16, God is putting man's words into the mouth of a donkey. That's what's happening in Numbers chapter 22. And we would ask the question, how would he accomplish this? Go down with me to verse 38. How did God accomplish this? Down in verse 38, Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word, of, uh, the word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. 
Now, what's going to happen over and over and over again in this very context wherein it says the Lord put words in the donkey's mouth is Balaam in the exact same context is going to say that God put words in my mouth. He says that here in Numbers 22. I want you to go with me to uh, Numbers 23. In verse 16, it's going to say it again. Numbers 23 in verse 16. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. That said, indicating he's doing it through words. And so if you ask the question, How did God put words in the mouth of a donkey? I believe in the context we can get the answer. He did it in the exact same way that he put words in the mouth of a man. However he did it with the donkey is how, how he did it with the man. The donkey used a man's voice. And fortunately for us, if you go to Numbers 24, Scripture will tell us exactly how God accomplished this. In Numbers 24, and go with me to verse 2. Numbers 24 and verse 2. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. How did God accomplish revealing words to a donkey? He used the Spirit of God. That's who accomplished it. And again, if this is the second person that God had standing right in front of them, this is the Father from heaven using the power of the Spirit to manifest through this donkey, through words. It's the Spirit of God who is accomplishing this. He is manifesting Himself, His power, through words, in this case, even to an animal. Go me to Genesis chapter 3 at our second example. Genesis chapter 3. But it made no sense for God to open up the mouth of the donkey and him to be able to bray like a donkey normally does. That makes no sense because that is disordered. There's no communi actual communication going on there. It would have accomplished nothing. Therefore, God, to accomplish what his end goal was of communication between a donkey and a man, he used man's words, and the Spirit was the one who did it. I want you to go up in Genesis chapter 3, the second example. And this one, I think, uh, requires a little bit more thought and depth into of the language that's being used here. But I want you to note in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Genesis 3 and verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now this is a favorite verse for many people like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe God is a man in form. They'll go to something like this and say, look, God is just like a man. He's walking through the garden. He, he's enjoying the, the, the beautiful morning, the cool morning. That's what they will go to to try to observe that this is God acting like a man. But I want to spend a little time in Genesis 3 and verse 8. And I want you to note what the, the, the Scripture is actually saying based on the words that God, through the Spirit, has used to, to communicate this. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, I want you to note to begin with that they heard this thing, they didn't see anything. And this is the problem with us sometimes, as we start to say to ourselves, I want to, how, how can I picture what's happening here? You don't picture what's happening here. Because what's happening here is something that is heard, not pictured. And now I want you to note that, because that's very important to what's happening here. We sometimes try to picture what must it have looked like for God to be walking through the, the, the garden. It's not something that looked like anything. It was something that was heard. Genesis 3 and verse 8. They heard. The next thing I want you to note from this context is this walking. I would encourage you to work, look up that word walking. It is halak in the Hebrew. It means to come and go. If you'll spend some time with me just in the book of Genesis for a moment, I want you to note how this word is used over and over and over again. In Genesis chapter 12, for example, Genesis chapter 12, and go with me to verse 9. Genesis 12 and verse 9. 
And Abram journeyed going on. That's that Hebrew word halak, to go. Look with me in Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19 and verse 2. Genesis 19 and verse 2. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet. You shall rise up early, and go on your way. That's that Hebrew word halak, to go. You see that, those two examples? Look in Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26, and verse 13. I like the way it's used in this verse. Genesis 26, and verse 13. And the man waxed great and went forward. And grew until he became very great. That went forward is that Hebrew word halak. I want you to go with me to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. So it's translated to go, to go on, to go forward. In Genesis 32 and verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee. Cometh. Is that exact same Hebrew word that is halak there? It literally means to come and to go. Now, oftentimes it is translated to walk, not indicating the, the legs on which it's happening, but what is being indicated by this word is the fact that, that that person is either coming or going somewhere. That's what's intended by this word in the Hebrew. It's, it's not a commentary on whether it had physical legs or not. It's a commentary on whether it was moving or not. It was coming or going. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. And the next word I want you to note in Genesis chapter 3 is that word cool. I think that sometimes we read that word cool and we think, oh, for some reason God has is wanting to indicate the temperature of the morning, the temperature of the day as God was walking through the garden. It's an unfortunate translation. It's never translated, translated this way anywhere else in the whole Bible. It's unfortunate because what it brings to people's mind is what the temperature of that day was. What does that have to do with anything? What temperature it was as this, this thing is taking place? But I want you to look up that word cool. It's ruach. What's important about that Hebrew word is ruach is the Hebrew word, one of the most common Hebrew words for spirit. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1 and verse 2, when it says the spirit of God, spirit, there is ruach. In Genesis 1 and verse 2. Uh, another example here just in Genesis, to, to give you two examples, Genesis 6 and verse 3. Genesis 6 and verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit, that's God's spirit, shall not always strive with man. That's the Hebrew word ruach that's being described there. I want you to go with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. This word ruach is also oftentimes translated a breeze or a wind. I think that's what's more in mind here, is this breeze or this wind. But I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And go with me in Exodus chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 10, and go with me to verse 13. Exodus 10 and verse 13. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land. That word is ruach, that wind or that breeze. An east wind is what he uses here. Look at verse 19. The Lord turned a mighty strong west wind. The wind is ruach there. It's a breeze or a wind. So I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter uh, 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I think by understanding a little bit better the words that are being used here, that the Spirit has chosen to use here, I think you can understand what is a little bit better what's actually going on here. Not picture it. You can't picture it. 
but you can understand what's going on here a little bit, a little bit better. In Genesis 3 and verse 8, when he says he heard, he heard the voice, or words is what he's hearing, the voice of the Lord, walking, not walking on legs, but coming and going. He's hearing a voice coming and going. That's what's under reference here. It's not the word walking on legs. It is the word coming and going, traveling in the garden, in the cool, or in other words, in the breeze or in the wind. It's the exact same thing that we would use today when you hear something in the wind, you don't know where it came from. That's the idea here. He hears the voice of the Lord coming and going in the garden. He's not telling them what temperature it is. He's telling them that in this wind, that this, this word of God is manifesting itself, coming and going in this garden. And I want you to consider the fact in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that by, by observing this, it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Whatever this word, whatever this manifestation of the word was that's coming and going, the voice of God, they considered it to be, in a sense, God's presence. In a sense, God's presence was found in the presence of His word, the presence of His voice coming and going, the Ruach of God coming and going. That's what they would see here, and I think what you have here is a manifestation of God's power through the Spirit in revealing words unto Him on this particular day. And what's important about these examples, and why we want to spend some time on the fact that He's revealing the Father's, uh, He is manifest, manifesting the God's mind, the Father's mind through words, is because He never manifests Himself, and it was not His job or His goal to manifest Himself in some feeling. That was never the case. It was not that God was making this mystical, magical feeling that was entering these people. That's never been the Spirit's mode of operation because His mode of operation has to accomplish unity and order. Not dysfunction, not chaos, not disorder, but order. And He accomplishes that through words. The Spirit's power is manifested through words. And the problem becomes because people get their information from fakes nowadays, fake religious people, is they've come so far from realizing how the Spirit is working to begin with that they accredit things to the Spirit that have never, ever even been true. Never been true about the way that, the, that, that, that God manifests Himself through the Spirit. It's not this mystical feeling. I think what is always the best thing to do is not ask a fake who claims they've received some kind of power, what is it like? I think the best thing to do is ask someone who actually had that power manifested in them, what is it like? That's the best thing to do. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, would be one who had had that power of the Spirit manifested to him through words. And so I would ask the apostle Peter, what was that like, Peter? I don't need to ask a fake because they're not going to have a real answer. But I can ask Peter, what was that like? In 2 Peter chapter 1, go with me to verse 20. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, meaning it wasn't made up by man, it wasn't willed by man, it was God-willed. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We saw, for example, Balaam, where God put words into his mouth. Peter is describing this is what it is. God is moving you through words. God is moving the person through words. It's not that God is physically relocating them. It's not that they're getting some kind of feeling. It's that God moved the, the prophets to reveal words unto them. Peter is the one saying that. 
and he knows better than any fake that's around you who claims to have this because he actually experienced the manifestation, the power of the Spirit. I want to add that to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which is another very important aspect. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we could ask Paul, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who had the power of the Spirit manifested in him. What was it like, Paul? I could ask Paul the exact same question. He is someone who can legitimately give us an answer to that question. What was that like? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 32, when you combine these two verses, 1 Corinthians 14, in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets, spirits here is their own spirits. We already know that in Ephesians 4. There is one spirit of God. This is spirits because it's talking about their own spirits. The spirits of the prophets are subject to who? The prophets. And what that means is when you, could do, uh, you combine these two bits of evidences from two men who had the spirit's power manifested in them, Peter tells us it is manifested by God moving them through words. Paul adds to that they didn't lose a single one of their human faculties when he did it. They didn't lose a single one of them. They had complete control over themselves even as God was manifesting the power through, of the Spirit through them by uh, revealing words. They didn't lose a single uh, aspect of their human faculty to do what they would do as a human being. In other words, the way we could put it is they didn't lose their mind. And the religious world around you will, will describe this process as the, you, you go insane. You go outside of your mind. And the one who actually had that power manifested said, nope, that's not it. You completely, the prophet, had complete control over themselves. With the exception of God through his, his, his spirit is manifesting words to them. And they spoke those words. It is not a loss of control because... And the reason for this is because of the Spirit's function. The Spirit of God's function is unity and order. It is not disorder. It is not chaos. It's order. That's his goal. That's his function. And so he's not going to do anything that brings about the opposite of that. He's only going to do that which brings about exactly what his goal was. Go with me back to Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul is going to say this over and over again in that very context that we started in. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I had to go up to Terrence after his lesson that, that day and ask him, what is rip and run? I do not have that, that kind of background where I was familiar with what rip and run meant. And he described, he said, exactly what I talked about. Someone will get the Spirit and all of a sudden just start sprinting from one place and they'll sprint to another place. And he described how you can go online and see the video of a man sprint to the camera and sprinting back and diving into the baptistry. It's called rip and run. I was not familiar with that, clearly, because that is nowhere in the Bible. And also, I've never seen it manifest itself except in crazy. And the Spirit does not work in the area of crazy. His goal is unity and order. That's His goal. He is not going to manifest Himself and accomplish crazy. That is not at all, because His main function is order, and His main function is, in fact, unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, go with me to verse 8. Ephesians 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, that's the second person of the Godhead, he led captivity captive and gave gifts, these miraculous gifts, these spiritual gifts, he gave those unto man. The, the son did that, the second person of the Godhead, went back to the father and gave gifts. But we know those to be manifestations of the Spirit's power. What was the purpose of these spiritual gifts, which 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 will reveal it was the manifestation of the Spirit's power? It is verse 13. That's the purpose. 
And we know this because that's the whole goal of the Spirit of God. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. What's your goal, Spirit of God? Unity is. And when, I, when the Spirit gave gifts unto men, the Son, through the Spirit's power, gave these miraculous gifts unto men, what was the purpose of them? Unity was. And that makes sense because that's His whole function. That's His whole goal within the Godhead. His role is coming to unity. And He also goes on and says, the knowledge of the Son of God. Increasing our knowledge of God, which is what we began speaking of this evening. Go me back to Ephesians chapter 2. When you look at denominationalism, denominationalism, for many other reasons, but this one certainly this evening, is not the product of the Holy Spirit. And we know that because denominationalism at its core is division. Why would the Spirit of God create a system that is so divided, that is so different from one another, that unity can never be accomplished? That indicates that the source of denominations are not the Spirit of God. The source of denominations are men, those who are capable of division and some who even have the goal of division. That is not God's goal. His goal is unity. So denominationalism is simply a product of man's goal, not God's goal. You see God's goal being described in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with me in verse 20. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 20 and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the foundation that the apostles laid, based on 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto holy temple in the Lord. You note there that there was involvement of, of course, the cornerstone, but there's also the involvement of prophets, there was the involvement of the apostles, all of which who we know already had the power of the Spirit manifested in them to accomplish unity, and he goes on and says in verse 22, In whom, in this building, this church, which is know what, what he's describing here, ye are builded together. Together, not divided. Why? Because the Spirit's goal is not division. It's unity for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. He makes it very clear in verse, 20, uh, verse 22. Who was going to accomplish this? God through the Spirit was going to accomplish this. What is he trying to accomplish? Bringing the house of God together. Not splintering it not dividing it apart. God's goal, God's role through the Spirit was to bring togetherness among the house of God, togetherness among the church. And if there's division, it's not God's doing and it's also not God's idea. It's not God's goal. That's man's goal, not God's goal. I want you to go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You could add to this the fact, not only did God, uh, did the Spirit reveal the Father's mind through words, you can add to this that He was revealing God's order and organization. The Spirit was involved in revealing God's order and God's organization. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 32. John 1 and verse 32. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit, the Spirit of God, descending from heaven like a dove, in a form like a dove, we've already read that, and it abode upon Him, upon Jesus, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, that's apparently the Father, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, which is also a very interesting study in of itself, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now what John the Baptist is describing here is something that he observed and witnessed. 
And what he witnessed and observed was, upon the baptism of Jesus, the second person of Godhead, the Father, the first person of Godhead, had already told him to go out and baptize, but he had also told him that when you see the Spirit descending in this form like a dove, and lighting and remaining upon someone, that one on whom he remains is the Son of God. John simply confirms, I saw this, and therefore I bear record. That man is the Son of God. And it's more than just identifying his, his identity to those around. It's identifying this is the Son of God. Therefore, he has the authority of the Son of God. And who was accomplishing this? The Spirit. The Spirit was used by God the Father to reveal to those on earth who is the Son of God and His authority and what He stands for. And John says, I learned it because the Spirit descended upon the Son. The Spirit using His role of revealing the authority behind the Son of God. Look in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and go with me to verse 3. Romans 1 and verse 3. Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, how did God declare and prove he was the Son of God? With power, isn't that interesting? According to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so he describes how was he confirmed to be the Son of God? The spirit was involved. The power in particular of the spirit was involved to confirm that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And remember, Jesus himself said in John 5, if I come and tell you I'm the Son of God, and I, I am the only witness for that, you don't have to believe me. But he says, I have many more witnesses than just myself. And he goes on and says, one of the greatest, the greatest witness is the Father. And the Father accomplished that witness through the Spirit, indicating this is the Son of God, proving it through power and proving it through signs. Look at me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. This is what's meant by 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God, remember God putting words in the mouths of those who he was directing through this uh, manifestation, no one in that scenario speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Why is that true? How can we say that Jesus is Lord with confidence? How can we say that Jesus is the Son of God but with confidence? Because God, through the Holy Spirit, has confirmed exactly who He was. He is identifying not only this is who this guy is, but He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. Therefore, He has the authority that God has given him. He is confirming the authority and the order of authority within God's plan. The Spirit is being used to confirm that. And so if someone is denying the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Spirit is not the source of that. That is division. The Spirit is the source of, of the, the true teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, based on 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. Not only Jesus. Go me to Acts chapter 8. And so the Spirit was used by the Father to confirm that Jesus was the Son of God and therefore in the order of things has been given all authority. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He has all authority and within the order of things He is at the top. And the Spirit confirmed that. But He wasn't done because the Spirit wasn't done with the order that God wanted us to know about. 
He also was going to use the Spirit to reveal the authority of the apostles to mankind. You have in Acts chapter 8, uh, go with me to verse um, 9, Acts chapter 8 and verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, magic, if you look that up in the Greek, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was a great one. That's interesting because you have false and fake power, and people following fake power, and he's about for the first time to witness true power, the true power of God. In verse 10, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is a great power of God. False. But you're about to find that out, that it's false. If you believe what he's doing is the power, a manifestation of the power of God, you are being misled. You are mistaken. This is not a manifestation of the true power of God. But what he's going to go into and demonstrate in Acts chapter 8, the true power of God. Look in verse 15. Who then, when they were come down, prayed for them. Uh, Peter and John the apostles prayed for those who had received, uh, who had obeyed the gospel, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were Christians, but they also did not have the Spirit that had fallen upon them, those gifts and manifestation of God's power through the Holy Ghost. So verse 17, to remedy that, it says they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Now the response to this witness, to these events, the response in verse 18, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He offered them money. What did he witness from this? God's order of things. God has placed apostles. He had placed apostles in the church. And those apostles had a certain order of authority within the church. And this man, through the power that was being demonstrated, the Holy Spirit, this man observes the fact these apostles are distinct. They're unique. They're different. Even from Philip himself, they're different. Because Philip couldn't do this. He's establishing the authority of the apostles. That is the goal, the function, the role of the Holy Spirit to bring about God's order, to reveal God's order. And I might add to that in a non-miraculous sense today, he is still doing that because based on 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the book of Titus we're about to get to in Bible class, the qualifications are being revealed for elders. In 1 Timothy 3, we've talked about this before, but Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to ordain elders in Acts chapter 20 in verse 28, we find out this is simply the Holy Spirit revealing God's order in the church. In Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves. Yourselves there are the elders at Ephesus who received 1 Timothy 3. The elders at Ephesus. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which, not Paul, Paul didn't make them overseers, the Holy Ghost made them overseers over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purposed with his own blood. Who manifested that? The Spirit did. And when you follow the Spirit's qualifications, this is a manifestation of God's will, God's mind to mankind, that's revealing God's order in the church today. You have the elders who have that oversight order within the church. Who revealed that? The Spirit did. Because God wanted him to. The Father, the architect, told him to and wanted him to. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a true shame, as I was going through this, it's a true shame that the very person of the Godhead whose sole purpose or greatest purpose, whose greatest goal, whose greatest function is to bring about order, it is a shame that no one has been accredited for more disorder than that very same person. That's a shame. 
the very person of Godhead whose whole role was to bring about order, who's to bring about unity, has been credited with disorder and dysfunction and chaos and division. That's a true shame. That was the opposite of his whole purpose. If you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, it's no mistake. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, in a context wherein he is talking about spiritual gifts, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, beginning in chapter 12, he is referencing and beginning this study and this revelation on uh, spiritual gifts, miraculous gifts. You get down to verse 4, there are diversities of gifts. There are different gifts, but the same one spirit in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, they have all the same source, all the same origins, one spirit, the one spirit that is God is the origin and source for these diversities in spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I want you to go with me to chapter 14 now. It's very context wherein he has revealed these spiritual gifts, the product of the Spirit of God, whose whole function was to bring about unity. It makes sense, therefore, when he gets to 1 Corinthians 14, he's addressing the usage of these same spiritual gifts. He says what he says back in verse 31, For ye all may prophesy one by one. Why one by one? Because that is order. The religious world will tell you do it all at the same time. That's disorder. And we know because the sole function of the Spirit was to bring order, that cannot be a product of the Spirit of God. He'll say in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion. If it's confusion, if it's, if it's chaos, it is not from the Spirit because that is the exact opposite of His function. Go down to verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Why? Because that's God's way. God's way is to do things in the church, for example, decently and in order. How are we supposed to know that? Because God's mind was revealed to the Spirit, and the Spirit's function was to bring unity and order in the church. That's how we know that. And it's a shame that the Spirit is given credit for the more confusion and, and disorder and chaos than anyone else. That's a great shame, because it completely demonstrates a lack of understanding of the roles of the Godhead. I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We will be, Lord willing, in two weeks, looking at the cessation of the miraculous. It's going to tie in, into this. Therefore, I'm not spending a lot of time this evening on that. It will be covered in, in two weeks, Lord willing. If that day comes, we'll cover the cessation of the miraculous. And it's related to, to the Spirit, which we know there's something about those spiritual gifts, therefore, that should have been accomplishing unity and should have been accomplishing order. But we oftentimes quote John 17 and verse 17 where Jesus praying to the Father says, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. You go to 1 John chapter 5, and if you haven't already done this, I would encourage you to, to note these two verses together. But in 1 John 5 and verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, speaking of Jesus, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. 1 John 5 and verse 6 says there is a, a proof. There is a witness to Jesus being who he says he was. And that witness is the truth. And that truth is from the Spirit. And it all goes hand in hand. In fact, go me to Titus chapter 1 as we conclude. We saw this in Bible class. I didn't know if Dink was going to cover it. I had my fingers crossed. Titus 1 and verse 3. This is exactly what's revealed in Titus 1 and verse 3. But he hath in due times. When you read that, it makes me think of Hebrews 1, verses 2 and following. 
that in these latter times, in the past, he, has, he revealed, God revealed himself unto prophets through the Spirit, by the way. He has in these last days revealed himself uh, through the Son. After the Son went back to the Father, was the Son done revealing himself? Was he finished revealing himself? In Titus 1 and verse 3, but hath in due times, in that perfect time also, manifested his word through preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, a manifestation of God's word through the preaching, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the truth. How is that manifested? By the Spirit-revealing word and revealing commandments. And then once that is preached, now that is a manifestation in this time of God. It's God using the system He has laid out to accomplish His word and His will being revealed. If you're here this evening, you're not a Christian, you can go through the Bible and find out what the Godhead revealed by the Spirit, what you must do to be saved. And it's not go outside of your mind. You need to stay inside your mind if you want to become a Christian. You need to reflect upon your own life if you want to become a Christian. You need to examine your own life. Don't lose your mind. Use your mind to obey the Gospel. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which was confirmed and proven by the Spirit of God through power, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He was who He says He was and had the exact authority that He said He had, and then you're willing to repent of your sins, turn away from that sin that you've been committing in the past, how do we know what to turn away from? Because the Spirit revealed what to turn away from. He did so through the Word, the Gospel, the Law. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10-12 through 12 also refers to it as the glorious Gospel. He reveals how to, what sin is through the gospel. How did God accomplish that? Through the Spirit is how He accomplished it. And we can take you this very hour having confessed that you believe Jesus, Son of God, and baptize you into Jesus Christ. Not to clothe yourself with power. Luke 24 and verse 49, the enduo with power is a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can't take you this very hour and baptize you in the Holy Spirit. We cannot do that because that was something that Jesus did. He was very clear about that. John was very clear about that. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's not something that I can help you with. But what we can do this very hour is baptize you into Jesus Christ to be in duo clothed with Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 27. And having been clothed with Christ and put on Christ, someone who is in Christ now, you have the blessings of being in Christ. Whatever the case might be, if you, if you need to respond, make those known as we stand as we sing.